Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. My name is Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. Hey, Ryan. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it feels good. That's enough of that. Our guest today is Ben Whiting, magician, mentalist, speaker, entertainer, consultant, trainer, and award-winning writer and actor. Does yep. that pretty much sum it up? <laughs> I, I, God, I Is hope that so. okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your business cards must be comically large. No, it's, it's just my name. That's all I do. Or you can have a different business card for each gig you're trying to get. Do you have to do that? I used to. Now I don't, but wow. I used to. Like Ben Whiting, speaker. Here you go. Magician. Well, when you look into what Ben has accomplished, these are all things that you do and services that you offer, and I think it's impressive. So I wanted to list them all out. So going back away, you received your BA in theater from Wake Forest University. Yes, that is a way. But I'm guessing... <laughs> The genesis for your desire to perform and entertain started before that. Oh, well before that. Yeah. 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 My interest in magic probably that bug bit when I was about five years old. I was an only child, so I had a really active imagination. And I always tell people the first time I saw magic, it was as if I had found my imagination outside of myself and I was just bit by the bug. As far as theater goes, that bug bit a little bit later. But what happened was, is I was trying to impress this girl. It's probably, I was probably a junior or a senior in high school. There you go. Like you do. <laughs> there like you, you do. And I was like, you know what? You know what? I should show this girl culture because I knew what that meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took her to a play in downtown Atlanta at the Shakespeare's Tavern. And the play was A Christmas Carol. Keep in mind that my only reference up to this point in time for A Christmas Carol was Scrooge McDuck. So <laughs> I was expecting like, puppets and pageantry and frivolity and musical numbers. But what happened was when we get there, it is just a bare stage and four actors with one Christmas wreath. And these guys just had the text down cold. One guy stood up and just jumped right into it and told the entire first stave by himself. And I was just blown away. And wow. then each actor told an individual stave, and then they all did the end together, and it just set my mind on fire. And ever since then, I feel like the bug was there to want to step on that stage and try that. Was the girl impressed? Uh, Were you so absorbed you forgot I was, she was pretty there? absorbed. I don't remember her name, but she was <laughs> great. <laughs> the, uh... Was that, would you say, the watershed moment that made you think, this is what I want to do? It didn't make me know that it was what I wanted to do, but it got me curious. And like I said, it was a scratch that needed to be itched. And so when I got into college, I was a huge nerd. I had no idea who I was. I thought you know, success came from working really, really hard and not having any fun. And I was lucky that I had a, a counselor who was like, Ben, you've, you're taking way too many like academic classes. Like, Do something to develop a personality. <laughs> Have some fun. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I'll take an acting class. And that's when I realized I needed to be doing this in some kind of capacity. So you had that counselor mm -hmm. who pushed you in a different direction, said you were being too serious because you were brought up to think that you just need to work hard and that's going to pay off. Yeah, yeah. Like the way I was brought up is your value came from getting good grades. 
And well, that was part of it. You know, obviously my dad was incredible at teaching me humanity and the importance of kind of the people side of things. So while my dad was very good at teaching me how to manage relationships, my mom was very ardent on achieving results. So I leaned into that. And then once I kind of got into theater, you know, whenever you dive into learning a character, the only way you can figure out who that character is is by comparing them to yourself, which means you have to know who you are. And so every time you kind of dive into a role, you learn a little bit more about yourself as well. When I tell people I figured out who I was in college, I think that's where it came from. Right. So from Wake Forest, you're one of an elite group of people to experience the school at Steppenwolf Acting Conservatory, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, you know, so much talent. You got Joan Allen, Martha Plimpton, Gary Cole, Gary (laughs) Sinise as a founder, John Malkovich. So when you leave Wake Forest and you get to that next level, did that seriousness take over or did you find a balance to have fun with what you were doing? Because that's another level. I learned how to have fun while doing the work, which was great. And of course, you know, because we were in class from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., six days a week. So wow. when you cut loose, you cut loose. But also on that same note, where magic kind of fell into place is I was very lucky that my first mentor in magic was a man named Jim Cellini. I always say he's one of the greatest magicians that no one's ever heard of. And he was a street performer. Not in the sense of David Blaine, let me like come around with the camera crew and show you a trick without a personality. Which, by the way, is a choice. I like David Blaine a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a very, very interesting character choice. Yeah, That's a whole a other thing. conversation. It was a thing. It was a thing. But Jim would walk onto the sidewalk, build a crowd, do a show, and ask for tips. And that's how he made a living. That's how he you know, paid for his mortgage, his house, his family. And I was lucky to have him as a teacher. So when I was not in class, that is how I made money in Chicago. And for the first... Two or three years in Chicago, the majority of my income came from street performing. Right. And to those uninitiated, what is busking? Busking is when you go on a sidewalk where no one is expecting you, you (laughs) do some short seven to 10 minute form of entertainment and you ask for tips. There's two types. There's trickle busking, which is where I'm constantly doing something and I have a hat out and I hope that people just drop money in, usually musician. Right. And then there's hat busking, which is... I don't let you tip me until my show's over. So we have a beginning, a middle, and end, and then I ask for tips. And that's just kind of where I, that's how Which I Which is the more lucrative? I sincerely believe that the hat is. Right. Because if you can quickly connect with your audience, make it feel like a community, make them like you. Right. Obviously, whatever it is you're claiming to do, you got to be able to do it relatively well. And then you just kindly ask them for money. The chances are a lot better. They'll they'll give more money. They'll give than, more because they feel like right, they have a relationship. Than the dollar for the guy with the guitar. Sure. Yeah, the guy with the guitar is like, oh, he's good, dollar. But like, yeah. you see my show, I give away money and I give a five dollar bill to a small kid in my show. Yeah. Boom. Or, and already you know, somebody's people like you're already you. in the hole. And yeah, now, I'm already give you in the twenty hole. for that though. I'd give you twenty. Exactly. And that. like, yeah. I would get twenty. I mean, the most I ever got was a hundred bucks, but and that happened maybe twice. Yeah. But 20s weren't unheard of, and fives were kind of, I was aiming for fives. Well, we got to think of the era. So, today, yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> that's about $7.50 now. But okay. as you progressed in your performing career doing that, what was the flick of the switch that showed you that you could do this to entertain and help businesses grow? That's a fun question. So, I should point out that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, I spent a long time. Yeah acting and street performing and then street performing the last kind of lesson jim taught me who was like 
get as good as you possibly can on the sidewalk and then get as far away from it as you can. So the sidewalk turned into house parties. House parties turned into country clubs. Country clubs turned into holiday events at corporate things, which turned into sales conferences and trade shows and cruise ships. And it just always trying to get to whatever the next level wow. is. And all the while acting is also kind of going in its own direction. And while I wasn't having as much success acting as I was entertaining, I was enjoying it just as much. And I feel I was learning just as much. And I still act some today. I mean, that's what brought me to Traverse City, Michigan was a professional theater company out here, hired me out of Chicago. And then I just never left. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Parallel 45 Theater, some of the most innovative <laughs> edgy, like provocative theater that I've ever been a part of. We've heard of them. Yeah. Right. A, yeah. Once or twice. That's a good episode of this podcast. <laughs> oh, it should be. I mean, you could have, <laughs> you know, Kit and Aaron founded it in 2010. And when their annual budget was, you know, I don't, Aaron is going to get mad at me if I say this wrong. It was either 1400 or 14,000. That is. Oh, Aaron is my wife. <laughs> she was the, <laughs> the original executive director of Parallel 45 Absolutely. Theater. Absolutely. And that first season, you know, they were just, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, getting set pieces from flea markets. and But they did the most incredible rendition of Thornton Wilder's Our Town I'd ever seen. And she took it from that $14,000 a year thing to what it is now. And they have this huge three-quarters of a million dollar venue. Their operating budget's all over the place. And they're bringing actors in from all over the world. Yeah, you should definitely have them in. <laughs> yeah. And they just got a new executive director now, Joe Beyer, who came to Traverse City from the Sundance Film Festival and Kit, who's a genius in her own right, but they're incredible people. So your path to this professional development, leadership training seemed almost serendipitous, but natural. I like the progression from the street to the country club, which is kind of a pretty good name for a biography, I guess, right. at some point. <laughs> but you have this strong base of being a mentalist. Mm -hmm. So was early on when you were doing this really professionally, was pitching the idea of mind reading to companies as ways to better connect, was that tough? Were people scratching their heads? So that idea actually came out, uh, that was kind of a, a ready, fire, aim moment. I always loved mind reading because people ask, you know, why do you tend to lean towards that? And I always say, Magic is like classical music. You learn your notes, you learn your scales, and if you play the right notes in the right order, you get the desired effect. Whereas mentalism and mind reading, it's like improvisational jazz. Yes, I have to learn my scales, I have to know my notes, but what makes it really pop is I know what I'm capable of in the moment, I know what you're doing in the moment, and I know what is around us. And if I can play all those notes in the moment, uniquely, together well, we might have something special. And so what I love about mind reading is you have to be present and in the moment. You can't phone it in and expect it to be good. Right. Which is a lot like communication. You know, mind reading, spoiler alert, I'm not actually psychic. I'm not I'm not related to Gandalf or Harry Potter. All right. You I, heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yes. That's the big reveal. You can put that at the end. All I'm doing is obtaining and delivering information, which is the same thing as communication. Yeah. The only difference is, is that mind readers have a certain set of principles they stick to when they're obtaining and delivering that information. Right. And the idea, what it's become is what happens when we take those principles and we apply them just to a conversation, whether we're having it with a client, a colleague, a friend, or a stranger. Right. And the reality is what happens is we get these, those same kind of profound moments of connection. And I just, 
I love that. I love the idea that, you know, if we could all bring our best selves to the table and everyone could clearly see our value, what kind of world would that be? The sad reality is people don't connect with the best ideas. They connect with the ideas that are communicated the best. So what's the difference between a great idea communicated poorly and a poor idea? You might think there's nothing, but the real difference is there's a huge loss in value if I have a valuable idea and I can't communicate it. So the idea for that keynote came, I was applying for TEDx back in 2015 or 16, and all I had was a title, and it was Connect Like a Mind Reader. By the way, everything I just said to you took years for me to put those words in those sentences so they actually made kind of sort of it sense. Really <laughs> it really rolls off. It really, yeah. I mean, it lands that, well. That is an elevator pitch years in the making that comes out in about seven seconds and it just happens. But I've been working on those specific words and getting them in that order so I can connect what it is I do to other people right. for a long time. But initially, it was just a title, Connect Like a Mind Reader. And my wife helped me write the description for the TEDx pitch, and it was selected. It was. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you've won a lot of awards, but I want to ask you about Magic Mouth Theater. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you co-founded, and it was focused on combining magic and theater while educating communities in both art forms. Mm-hmm. Now, was there an origin there? Was there something that you felt was lacking of understanding or respect for those art forms at the time? The origin of Magic Mouth Theater. I was in Vienna, Austria. I was studying abroad there. And my best friend in the world, a man named Matthew Gutchik, Michael Gober and Matthew Gutchik, my two best friends in the world. But this particular story involves Matt. And I was street performing. I was still learning to street perform and I was doing it in Europe. And he came up to me one day because Matt was another theater major at Wake Forest. And you said, hey, Ben, what if we combine theater and magic in a way where magic wasn't the point, but it was the main narrative tool that we use to tell a story? Because right now, if you go on Broadway and you see Peter Pan, Peter Pan flies around and you can see the strings. Yeah. But the technology, the modus operandi exists within the world of magic that he actually, you wouldn't be able to see any strings. In fact, he could fly under things and above them and around them. It's all possible. It's just no one ever kind of puts the effort into because it's hard enough to act, let alone act and don't forget to pull this wire and turn under this and rely on 40 other people to pull your strings while you float around. But it's possible. And so he pitched that idea and we started working on our first play, which was called Awakening. And it's what led to this creation of Magic Mouth. It was like the first student production to ever be on the Wake Forest main stage, which we were really excited about. But initially, <laughs> we uh, I'm sorry, all Wake Forest faculty, uh, I, we stole a key to get into the theater. And so at night, what we do is we would open up the kind of loading dock area, bring in these illusions that we had built, set them up, rehearse, and then break it all down, put it back in the truck and leave before anyone knew it had happened. And we did this for about two months. Wow. And then when it was all said and done, we finally were like, hey, we have something to show you. Do you have a key we can borrow? Oh, good. We're just going to bring the stuff in. And like, of course, we went right to it. And they were like, all right, you can do this on the main stage. And it was a lot of fun. There's the old saying that success is achieved usually by people too green to know what the hell they're getting into. Yeah. That was us. So we like made a car appear. We did Houdini's water torture cell. We, you know, we're doing stuff in the audience and appearing. It was nuts. We shouldn't have done it. Well, no, we should have done it, but 
if I had the choice to do it again, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, yeah, that's that's good. a lie. I, I would, mean, I would do you it know, again. what you do, even the simplest trick, yeah. has yeah. to be pretty gratifying. And what I've read is that you're able to grow that and use those techniques to teach children life skills. Right, because when you think about magic, it's all about perspective. And I have to be hyper aware of everyone who's watching me and what their perspective is if I'm going to successfully pull off the feeling of magic, which is a lot like empathy. And so the things we use also, you know, it's communication. Am I communicating what I'm doing clearly so the audience knows what's set up so that the magic can happen? And all those kind of life skills, we had a lot of fun. We developed multiple curriculums that just taught kids how to perform magic. And then we have discussions on how do we apply this to regular everyday conversations. Wow. So what does it mean that you are, quote, a different kind of magician? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, no, no. It's it's great. It's, I, it's a bold and, and wonderful statement. I just wanted to hear yeah, it from yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I came up with it. I didn't want people to think I was your run-of-the-mill magician for all occasions, going to phone it in, that kind of stuff. You know, everything I do, I try to make it special and connect with whoever's watching me, my audience. And so a different kind of magician, I feel like, can encapsulate just about everything I do, I hope. <laughs> but whether it's teaching mind-reading principles and how to apply them to communication, whether it's teaching rapid influence from the perspective of a street performer, or whether it is just entertaining. Because I still do shows. You know, I have a show coming up at Turtle Creek Casino, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited just to now, Can you talk about that show at all, or is it similar to the one that you did there before? Uh, it is not similar to the one I did before. Oh, cool. The one I did there before was called Tricks Against Humanity. And it was exactly what you would expect. It was magic and mind reading meets Cards Against Humanity. It was fun. It was raunchy. It was inappropriate. And it was... And very successful, from what I understand. It, we were very, very fortunate to sell out the entire run and add a few shows. And wow. they sold out as well. Uh, and then we received a lovely cease and desist from the Cards Against Humanity <laughs> company because, you know, Turtle Creek had put it up on a billboard and someone took a photo of it and put it up online. And I don't know how it got to him, but I got, <laughs> got an email from the Cards Against Humanity lawyer with just the photo saying, like, we appreciate the nod, but you got to stop doing this. So do they have a trademark on against humanity? Like, you can't put anything against humanity? Funny you should ask. I talked to a lawyer about this. So their trademark is, yes, it's against humanity, but it's also the white lettering, the font, the spacing, oh, okay. all those things that, yeah, yeah I that, That's the infringement right there, because otherwise, apples to apples. Right. I mean, you know, there's they're not the first game to be that. They're just yeah. and nasty. They were, I will say they were exceptionally cool about it. They're like, look, use our cards in the show. We just can't have you using our branding, because yeah. if we don't pursue this legally and tell you to stop, it opens the door for Burger King to do French fries against humanity. Right, yeah. And, um, yeah. and the big question was, is... Of course. Is it possible that someone could think the actual Cards Against Humanity people are putting on this show? And yeah. Yeah. I had people ask me that, so I know it's true. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Well, I'm glad that you stayed out of the clink for that whole thing. Yes. That's good. And the show is coming back. It'll just be called Dirty Tricks moving forward. Perfect. <laughs> so your TEDx talk. Mm-hmm. You tell a story about how your dad helped you out when you were 11, which almost led to you being taken away by Child Protective Services. Correct, and him going to jail. <laughs> how important was that support to you early on? And what advice would you give to somebody who has a dream but doesn't have that kind of support? 
Yes. So that support for me, my dad especially was always supportive of me seeing what I think is impossible and then trying to do it. And I've been very, very lucky that I, a big part of my life and the way I've made my living is doing just that. And, but I will also say that, yeah, not everyone has that kind of in-home support. The biggest advice I can give you is once you kind of get an idea of something that's interesting to you, something that has a chance at sparking your kind of passion, find someone who's already doing it and then scratch, claw, charm, joke, whatever you can to get in touch with that person and ask them for help. Yeah. I think that, you know, I've been very, very lucky to have a great string of mentors in my life. And it was always because I sought them out and I asked them for help. Jim Cellini, who I mentioned earlier, I met him at a magic lecture. I was such a nerd. And it was my very first magic lecture. I was expecting like secret underground rooms with mahogany bookshelves and leather bound books. And you just know, in a Marriott or something? It was in a Denny's. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. in the back of a Denny's. And, wow, that's and I was just like, oh, this is going to be awful. But then <laughs> Jim got Sounds up. Sounds like my first time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll assume you're talking about a card trick. <laughs> but. Then Jim got up and he performed, and it was, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And it was the first time I didn't just see what good magic looked like. I felt what a good magical experience should be. Right. And I said, Jim, I want to learn from you. And he's like, you know, I'd be happy to teach you, but when I get done with this tour, I'm going back to where I live in Europe. Because he lived in Switzerland. And as dumb luck would have it, that next semester is when I was going abroad to Vienna. And I was in class Monday through Thursday. So Wednesday night, I packed a bag and ride for class took a train to uh, Zurich, Switzerland, and that's all I knew, Zurich, Switzerland. And it took me about half a day, or day and a half, but I found him. And he was kind of so impressed by that that he was like, yeah, I'll teach you. So yes, that's what we did. That's <laughs> another yes. bio from Denny's to Switzerland? Denny's to Switzerland, yeah. From Denny's wow. to Zurich, or Zauberladen. That was <laughs> the magic shop in Zurich, so Switzerland. Where you've I talked it. about this a little bit before, but for your speaking, for your leadership training and training, you're heavily focused on connections. Mm -hmm. Is that really the foundational framework of your quintessential kind of successful business philosophy? So there's three kind of pillars to my successful business philosophy. First and foremost, communication. Because if you can't communicate, the horse can't get out of the gate. You know, people don't connect with the best ideas. They connect with the ideas that are communicated the best. After that, it's about connection. How well can you relate to other people? No one likes an ego, but people always support the things they believe they help create. So if you have an idea and you can get someone to feel like they're contributing to it, you're going to have much more success than if you just tell them, this is really good, I need your help. Yeah. So that connection is part of it. And that ties into emotional intelligence, EQ, and all that jazz. And then the third pillar is mindset, especially this day and age with imposter syndrome. It's so prevalent. You know, Everyone feels like they're not qualified to be where they are and... Any moment they're going to feel like someone's going to catch them and be like, ah, you don't deserve anything yeah. you have. And that is just everywhere. So you have to realize that, in my opinion, imposter syndrome is a good thing because it means you're pushing yourself. <laughs> the only people who really don't have imposter syndrome are imposters. <laughs> so <laughs> if you have it, it's a good well, thing. So that's, that's a mode of self-realization, right? Or it's something... Right more psychological that makes you think I don't deserve what I have even though you know you work hard you're seeing that more and more oh yeah yeah and I think 
some of the biggest contributors are labels and comparing. And it's so easy this day and age to compare yourself to someone else and think I'm failing miserably at everything I try. Right. But when you think about it, the only thing they're seeing is what people want you to see. Everyone's putting their best foot forward. Somebody, I, I maybe I should do this, should have a don't feel bad about yourself Instagram account where it's like, look at me and my wife taking a selfie in front of the bankruptcy attorney yeah. or like my before and after pick where I gain weight <laughs> over COVID. Well, I saw a guy, <laughs> oh, Will, Will Smith just cornered that. Yeah, I saw, oh, he did? Yeah. I saw yeah. a guy taking a selfie after he just finalized his divorce. There you go. <laughs> it is his ex-wife was not too happy about it. But I get that. I mean, there should be an outlet for positive affirmation. But you said, and I quote, empathy is a gateway drug to connection. What does that mean? Because you use the term gateway drug. That's pretty provocative. It is. And I really identified with that. But I'd love to hear your... And you don't have to spill all of your beans, but just in general. I have no problem spilling them all. Empathy is a gateway drug to connections. So... If you want to get into the weeds about it, if we want to talk about the neuroscience, we have these wonderful things in our brain called mirror neurons. And it's why when I take a finger and I push it back and I go, you just flinched. Right. And that's okay. But first and foremost, that was a joke. Yeah, of course. I just went like that. Okay. (laughs) But that was on point. Mark's Uh, neighbors flinched at that. Yeah. So we're hardwired to connect with one another, socially, emotionally, et cetera. And that's what mirror neurons are. But we don't just have them physically. We have them emotionally as well. And whenever someone is going through a genuinely intense experience, that part of our brain fires. Yeah. And it's just because we're so hardwired to be connected, empathy and not just telling people what we think is right, but being curious as to why they're coming to the conclusions they're coming to. It's just so much easier to meet in the middle if we approach it that way as opposed to you think you're right, I think I'm right, and we're going to argue about it with our facts until something happens, which, by the way, nothing ever happens. And listen, for the for the listeners at home, we just want them to know it, it just appeared that Ben broke his finger. I am literally it still was, unnerved by it. <laughs> yeah, it was like, whoa. And shame on me. I'm sitting across from an accomplished and award-winning magician, and I was still completely Who taken in by that. fight club on us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what I find is, and what, this is one of the things, you know, the other thing I love doing is talking about storytelling and how we tell effective stories to connect. I was very lucky. There was a Michigan Citizens panel 30 people that were representative of the entire Michigan population in terms of gender, like the percentage was the same, uh, geography, where they were from, race, and politics. So we have everything in this group from everything on the political spectrum, sure. every anti-vaxxers all the way to Black Lives Matter and everything in between. Right. And these 30 people had to get on a Zoom five nights a week and agree on creating something that they could hand to state legislature and state government in terms of what they would recommend and how the state can handle COVID. So obviously we need some facilitators because this could get very heated very quickly because all those people are in one room. Right. And I was brought in to be one of those facilitators, but what this group did that was so impactful and so wonderful is the first week, all they did was share stories. And the rule was you don't interrupt you listen to their story, and you just try and find something you can relate to. It doesn't have to deal even necessarily with the main point of their story or with COVID, but you have to find something you can relate to. And we took the entire week and every single one of those 30 people told a story. And from that point on, they were respectful. They could talk calmly. 
yes, we'd have moments where people would get heated and emotional, but overall, they worked together and demonstrated that you could have a group of 30 people all over the political spectrum, all different races, all different genders, work together towards a common goal and achieve it. And I think what really made that work was the beginning week of just listening to other people's stories, gaining that relatability, trust, likability, all those things. Because we had one person who came in late and didn't get to participate in that part of the process, and it was very difficult for them. And it was very difficult for other people because they hadn't established that kind of As rapport. like a control group, that's a side effect of a scientific study of sorts to have that person who demonstrated the opposite. Yeah, and it wasn't even intentional. It was, you know, yeah. we had someone that had to drop out due to work, and so someone else got brought in, and yeah. that's just what happened. So when things got out of line, you'd break your finger, and everybody would have to stop <laughs> and listen. But, you know, your advice would be to take the time to truly empathize and to listen to somebody else's story because there is going to be something in there that you may be able to identify with and see them as a human rather than as a con. And 99% of the time, our values are the same. We all want to protect the people we love. We all want to live in a society that is fair and just. We all want to have hard work pay off. We all value those things. It's just how we go about it. And what informs how we go about it is our stories. And so when we listen to those stories and actually, you know, we listen to understand versus listening to respond, you know, more often than not, you're going to have people getting along. That is magic to me when I can see things like that happening. So you're a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. (laughs) Yeah. You're a member of American Mensa. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that education, the pursuit of knowledge is important to you. Is that something you could attribute to the fact that you've pursued magic and entertainment because there is no pinnacle. You've not learned everything you can learn in magic. You've not created the perfect thing. Oh, or yeah. is that just who you are? I think that's who I am. I think one of the things about curiosity and wonder, whether you're looking at it from an educational standpoint, a magic standpoint, or anything you might be curious about, is when you're curious, you're present and you're in the moment. I think that might be what I'm addicted to. Because I think some of the best feelings we have are not the ones that we plan, but the ones that just kind of naturally evolve out of what's happening. And then boom, we're all here. No one's in their head. No one's on their phone. We're experiencing something together. And that happens, you know, for me, entertaining, doing a keynote, because my keynote is not a lecture. It's I have the audience up. We're doing things. We're interacting. And not in the corny way, everybody. Not like, let's do some icebreakers. He does oh, yeah. like there's, really, there's no trust falls. <laughs> really cool, fun, fun interactive stuff. I like what happens in, and right now, this I'm working on my virtual keynote right now. And the way it ends right now is I tell everyone, before this is done, even though you're there and I'm here, you are going to do something impossible. And... Feedback has been that I've been delivering on that. So still working on it, still still polishing it, but that's where we're headed. And what's great is, you know, this idea wouldn't have come about had it not been for the pandemic and having to do virtual shows. But now I want to take that and figure out a way to do it live. You know, <laughs> my final question has to do with more of a personal question I've on- wanted to ask you. Yeah. I've known you for a while now, and mm-hmm. I think the first time we met, it was a high school job fair type of thing and I had to speak after you so you introduced yourself and I had to say what I did and I felt terrible shame at not being as exciting as you but is it tough doing what you do and do friends and family or just they just on you all the time like do magic Ben they're not anymore there was a time when they were and 
to make you feel better about yourself, I remember that career day. And I got trolled after that. And like 10 oh, kids no. went to my Google business page and just berated me. And it, I got the last one wiped like two months ago. So wow. don't feel bad about that. I'm never doing one of those again. Yeah, so that happened if it makes you feel any better. Oh, no, that's okay. I didn't feel that bad. But as <laughs> it's a funny anecdote. You know, it's funny now, but the, I remember the next day just like being like, <laughs> you get those notifications from Google Business being like, like you're a disappointment. <laughs> like imposter syndrome, just like, like, I don't know how you spell want, 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 but that's pretty much oh, what's coming through. Waka, waka, waka. That's how you spell it. <laughs> but as far as doing magic, I. Yeah, my friends and family now, they're they're very respectful of it. My wife, we kind of have a rule that, like, I don't show her anything unless it's, like, in its last phase before going in front of a live audience. When you work in a creative field, I, I almost think this is, like, this probably for Angel. I am constantly thinking about ideas and ideation. And I've done all the personality profiles, and they all say the same thing. Like, I'm an idea person, big picture person, and I live in my head. And I do. So it's easy for me to talk about something for a long time. You've bared witness to me talking about Bruce Springsteen at some point in time. I oh, know. yeah, yeah. And I can talk about uh, that. boss. Yeah, I can talk about the boss for an uncomfortable period I'm, of time. I'll introduce <laughs> you to my mother-in-law. She's That's, that's the fan. good thing about passion, though. And that's why you know certain podcasts exist and, and why is podcast communities exist, because it's fun to talk about your passion. Oh, it's great. So what's the best way to connect with you? What's the best way to engage you, to hire you? What are you doing right now, and what do you need most? Ben at benwhiting.com. That's my email. Benwhiting.com is my website. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at benwhitingmagic, and LinkedIn, I think, for that matter, benwhitingmagic. Right now, I don't want to ask anybody... Just reach out. If there's something you need, I can help you with. I'll help you. And if I can't, I'll point you in the direction of someone who can. But keynote speaking, leadership development training are really big right now. Communication training. Because right now, I think people are dying for the principles of engagement. Those need to be brought back into our conversation because we all have Zoom fatigue, screen fatigue. Yeah. Although I don't, <laughs> I always ask, you know, at what point does screen fatigue set in? And people think I'm talking about Zoom and they're always like, oh, 30, 45 minutes. And then I'll ask, what's the longest you've watched Netflix without looking away from the screen? And it's eight or nine hours. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think it's screen fatigue as much as it's boredom <laughs> fatigue. Yeah. And there's ways we can combat boredom. We can right. do that with variety. We can do that with anticipation in our voice, our body language, and the stories we tell. And so I'm having a lot of fun right now teaching those presentation skills and how you can apply them on screen, off screen, and how we tell effective stories to right. motivate and influence people. Well, you've been talking about connection long before I was invoked to talk about connection yeah. before <laughs> people really knew that they needed it. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, this is my Truly. pleasure, man. This was a blast. I, thank I, you. I have one question. Though. Oh, yeah, please. Um, what name stands out the most in magic to you? Is it Phil Dumphy, <laughs> Burt Wonderstone, or Michael Bluth. Or Mark Wilson. Oh, Michael Bluth. See, uh, the, the illusions. Illusions. Yeah. Now, Mark, Job. Which, Job. There's a few Mark Wilsons. Which one are you talking about? Well, not myself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Is there one? I thought there was only one well-known Mark Wilson. The video magic. course and magic guy? Yeah, the you know I got Mark Wilson's tiny book of magic and it's like yes, that was big. one of my it's first like... magic books. Mark <laughs> yeah. Wilson, it's it's rare to find people who yeah yeah he's great <laughs> when you got a name. But you're if you're going between Burt Wonderstone, Michael Bluth, and what was the first one? Joe Bluth. Joe Bluth. Is... Oh, Joe Joe Bluth. <laughs> Burt Wonderstone. What was the other or funny one? Phil Dumphy. <laughs> <laughs> that is tough. I mean, I have reasons to love 
all of them. I think Job, whoever wrote that, knows a lot. <laughs> like, took the true, like, worst qualities of magicians, but they are true, and just threw them all together into one person. My and illusions, which, Mike. I remember, it's hilarious. Yeah, tricks is something that whores do for, for money. money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he's at, at the Girls Gone Wild parties. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your pursuits, entertaining, educating, and uplifting people and organizations all over. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for pursuing the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us again on The Pursuit of Podcast. The Pursuit of Ben Whiting, speaker, entertainer, consultant. For more information, check him out at benwhiting.com. B-E-N-W-H-I-T-I-N-G dot com. Big shout out to our supporters, Tin Lid Hat Company, tinlidco.com. Use the promo code The Pursuit Of for a 40% discount to our listeners. And for general production and podcasting inquiries, reach out to us. New Leonard Media, newleonard.com.